Hello, and indeed, welcome to Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Join myself, Gaddy. I don't know why I emphasize Proust like that. I used to do that back in the old days, and then I stopped doing it. Anyway, yeah, shut up. Uh, I'm Mr. Tilted Icer. With me is Gary Roger. Hello. You've got overconfident because people said nice things about our ITV nighttime show. Yes, thank you very much indeed to everybody who did say nice things, but that was really, really nice. We had a lot of retweets for that show, and... Some very nice feedback about it. And it was it was great fun to do. It was a show that was lots of fun just to look back and identify a few key moments and what have you. It's always nice in these kind of things where you talk about a certain aspects that tend to get overlooked by the sort of mainstream documentaries and so on. And I hope, it's not necessarily going to turn out like that, but I hope that that might be our uh, raison d'etre today. Expectations down, kids. <laughs> because we're dealing something which has been dealt with a lot. Over the last few weeks, we're coming late to the party. We hope that we'll bring something. We might not bring brand new information. We might not bring things you never knew before. Because I think most of our listeners are fairly well grounded in a lot of the stuff we talk about. So there's always the risk that if we do anything too much like a beginner's guide, we're just going to be parroting stuff that you read when the internet was young and free and... Badly designed, worse designed than now. So all being well, if you already know everything we're saying, we're at least going to put it in a different order. Some of it will be chronological, but no doubt we'll take tangents. If you're kind of halfway, if you're an improver rather than advanced, then maybe we do stand a better chance of doing something a bit different. But really, we're here to give weapons against the office bores. What were the office bores saying the beginning of this month? Well, I presume that they would have been saying, Hey! Have a look at this in the Metro. Apparently it's 80 years since Bruce Forsyth invented television. What is it the 80th anniversary of, really? It is the 80th anniversary of the, I suppose you would say, official beginning of the full-time BBC television service established 2nd of November 1936. No. What?! The BBC had a television service before 1936. Yeah, I said full-time. A regular television service. Yes. Hey, what? Hang on. The BBC had a regular television service. What it didn't have was a regular high-definition television service. How do we define high-definition? Well, it just so happens that really it's the world's first regular high-definition television service, high-definition as defined by a committee that's been formed on behalf of the British government so that if we take that as the defining moment, hey, Britain comes first, great. <laughs> I don't want, I'm not, I don't want to rain on the parade, but if you really wanted to, you could argue that this is something of an exercise in goalpost moving. Are, are you engaging in what might be termed unpatriotic behaviour here? No. Are you putting down Britain? Is this what's going on? Because Brucey's backing Britain, and Huey Queen would have a few things to say about it as well, I'm sure. Let Britain's achievements be what they are, not what we half-close our eyes and pretend that we'd like them to be. So, right, okay then, who invented television? Television was invented, as we all know, by Helensborough's own John Logie Baird. And I defy anybody to tell me anything otherwise. Nobody invented television. Television developed, and a number of people are essential to the development of television, and Baird is a giant in the development of television. I'll give you that. That's, that's very big of you. <laughs> no, I'm... 
I'm, si- I'm not. I'm not here to uh, do a whole like ah no yeah no you're wrong no no Baird is really important in the development of television. Baird Baird is a man. He's making big demonstrations first, but the system that ended up dominating the last half of the 20th century doesn't really owe anything really to his system. And I'm going to step outside of my comfort zone. How are you about computers? Do you know much about the history of computers? I am aware of the Markham and Wise Taddy adverts of 1981. I have used computers in the past. I, I learned to type. Right, this is taking too long. I, I'm almost thinking that Bird, you could say, is to television what Clive Sinclair was to the home computer. Do you know what? I was actually going to throw back at you something that you said to me a couple of days back when we were preparing for this. You you put it perfectly. You said that Baird was the best, effectively, I suppose you would say, salesman for television that there was. So as you say, okay, the 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 the, the, the formats that came along afterwards, maybe not too technically close to Baird, but he was the guy who believed in the medium, the product, the idea of it when the BBC and all the people just didn't really want to know and just thought he was another crank and just thought like just you know palming them off and say nice things to him and then keep him the hell away from our bloody transmitters for God's sake. Before Baird, you've got Campbell Swinton, who gives a proposal for some form of distant electric vision in 1911, but he acknowledges himself that the technology was not there to make it happen. But he's got ideas in place, and Campbell Swinton did live long enough. I'm trying to remember what he said about Baird. I'm not sure if he said he was a rogue. He might have been even more down on Baird. He might have implied that Baird was a con man. Unfairly, but there, so the grandfather of television did not look kindly on the arguable father of television. You've got... Now, here's an interesting thing. A while ago, I was watching one of the new Peabody and Mr. Sherman cartoons. He has got fart jokes in. No, no. But Mr. Sherman says, the inventor of television, I thought, American cartoon, he's going to say Philo Farnsworth. He said Zwarakin, Alexander Zwarakin. So, oh, that's interesting, Zwarakin. Yes, his ideas are definitely essential to recent modern television, the stuff that we eventually abandoned in the beginning of this century. So you got Zwarakin. Who else you got? Paul Nipko, after whom the German television service in 1935 was named. So you've got lots of names, and they all have ideas, and they're all working towards it. But Baird is the man who gets the word television in the British newspapers a lot in the 20s. There seems to be a new news story about what he's doing. He's giving public demonstrations. I think 1925, Selfridges, public demonstration of television. Selfridges being aware that it's a good way of getting people into the shop. Colour television, transatlantic television, stereoscopic television. These are all things Baird's coming up with before the end of the 20s. So people know television is going to be a thing. Television is going to happen. It's being developed. It just needs the money and the technology to catch up with it to make mass manufacture possible. One proviso. After Baird's transatlantic test, there was a letter in Popular Wireless and somebody said, a few years ago, Baird was demonstrating television by showing faces and he's still demonstrating television just by showing faces. So there was this feeling that what what he's doing, this is why some people look upon him as a rogue and a con man, which I don't think is true, but he's jumping ahead of himself, developing the toys and the gimmicks, but he's not getting the essential thing expanded. So 
he's still doing this seven by three picture that really is 30 lines and only is effective for showing faces. So that's bad. That's, that, that brings us up to the 1930s. Now, I've been doing a lot of research for this. I read a book. I've been reading lots of articles. I've watched four documentaries. I've watched Television is Here Again, the demonstration film from 1946. It's all there, stuffed in my head. So I need you to attach a spigot of pertinent inquiry to let it all out my head. So ask me a question, a good one. Okay. By the way, listeners, can you imagine how terrifying that would be what Tilt just said if, say, he was claiming to be a doctor? I've read four books, I've watched three and a half television documentaries, and I'm pretty sure I know what I'm doing. But thankfully, no invasive surgery is planned for this show, so we're safe. My first query, if you like, is it's all very well for these fancy places like Selfridges. And actually, this business about bear demonstrating Selfridges, an idea then copied by Grace Brothers in 1981, I think you'll find. But anyway, when is the first time that we start to hear about television outside of these little sort of elite exclusive circles? Is there an instance, for example, of television being discussed on the radio? Because the radio is the the new, relatively new mass medium of the time. Funnily enough, that will bring us back to Scotland. It will bring us back to Glasgow. The Glasgow station of the BBC. Uh, 1925, it's still going to be the British Broadcasting Company as well, isn't it? Yes, indeed. They put out a play about television, a futuristic play. So two years after Baird's first demonstration, it says in my notes, 1923 Baird demonstrates, and I'm pretty sure it was television he was demonstrating, not hot socks. <laughs> Why don't we hail him? The <laughs> Baird, perfecter of the hot sock. How but do anyway, you demonstrate hot socks, exactly? I mean, do you just parade around? You them? get a man with cold feet and you say, put these on, how do you feel, mate? And he's, Hey, oh, missus. <laughs> so, sorry, like, television. So there's a, there's a play on the radio about television, a science fiction play about what, what will television... It's like Black Mirror. Oh, this new technology, eh? Mm, there's a thing. Make you think. You don't have to watch Black Mirror now because I've just described every... <laughs> Are you trying to bring the BBC into things? Because we have two different dates here. You see, there's the first time television is sent over the BBC's transmitters, and that's 1926. And then there's the first time that television is sent over the BBC transmitters with the permission of the BBC, (laughs) and that's 1929. It's TSW all over again. Bed did not hijack a BBC transmitter. I think he informally asked somebody who worked there, can I send my signal out over your thing? And, oh yeah, sure, fine. And then his boss is found. His the boss is found out. Excuse me. At the conclusion of broadcasting this evening on Two LO, John Logie Baird of Helensborough, Scotland, will be showing a selection of filthy films. If you enjoy it, if you happen to receive any of these, could you please notify us so we can find out where the hell he's hiding? So what the BBC radio service just turned into like what the butler saw in the middle of the night. <laughs> It's the interesting thing is that Baird Television and BBC Television are separate things for a while, even when Baird is working with the BBC. It's not for certain that the future of British television is the future of BBC Television. Baird has friends at the post office. Somebody out there likes him. 
So Baird is allowed, with the permission of the BBC, to use the transmitters in 1929, but we don't get a BBC-centred version of television until 1932. And even then, if we jump forward to 1935, Baird is still doing experiments, but he's doing experiments with something closer to television as we know it. He's no longer just showing heads and shoulders. But even then, he managed to get a licence to transmit television in 1935 with nothing to do with the BBC. Had his own transmitter at Crystal Palace, his own call sign, G2TV. This was done with the BBC reproach, but, uh, well, Reith was approached, I believe, who'd had encounters with Baird before when they were both students. Not a pleasant encounter. Did anybody ever have a pleasant encounter with Reith? Oh, somebody must have. There must have been at least one time where he didn't shout at somebody. You know that P.G. Woodhouse thing? It's not difficult to differentiate between a Scotsman with a grievance and a ray of sunshine. That's pretty much Reith, isn't it, he's talking about? <laughs> the BBC, and we think it's Reith, is approached in 1935 by the post office saying, look, Baird's still doing stuff. Is it okay if he sets a transmitter and transmits television pictures? And the reply comes back, as long as it's not a television service with proper programmes, that's fine. How much does Baird stick to this? Well, Baird Television had a tuning signal, an ident, and a startup theme. There's a fantastic article called Baird's Independent Television. It's on the Transdiffusion site. Go there. You can have a look at the eye-straining tuning signal, and you can listen to the startup theme. Just to clarify, when you say the eye-straining tuning signal, is this better or worse than that late 60s black and white Harley ident? It's different. It's more Picasso-esque. It's just more crazy shapes. I was quite disappointed the first time I ever saw the ident properly to discover that the sound effects that Victor Lewis Smith had, had laid over the top of it didn't actually exist as part you of You and me and a significant number of other people who watch TV <laughs> Hell Night. So, okay, right, you're saying to me earlier when I was saying that we can't really call Bed the inventor of television. He's saying, oh, you're doing Britain down. National pride, I think, has a lot to do with it. Baird is the face of British television, because when any Scotsman is sufficiently successful enough, he becomes British. That is why you, Gary, will always be Scottish. Outrageous. So pursuing Baird's system is a matter of national pride, because it's a British system. There are people making big leaps, but they're foreign. Even if they're based in Britain with British workers, there's still that certain sense, and Baird are... Very happy to push the idea that these are foreign interests and it would be a wound to national pride for British television to pursue these other systems. I mean, the US starts having a seven day a week, 28 hours a week. I don't know if it's if it literally it's, it's four hours a night. It's a problem. Sometimes you just get the numbers and you just have to divide them up equally. I hope you're doing the right thing. Anyway, seven days a week, television service in New York in 1931, inventing things like television drama with the television ghost. Okay, it's a man looking into the camera describing how he died. He plays a different ghost every time, but his makeup doesn't change. So the Americans are nipping on our heels. Of course, the Germans, the French, the Russians, they're all developing their own things, and somebody's going to be first with television, and somebody's going to be first with really good television. Really the kind of thing that is interesting in and of itself, not just as a technological miracle for men to sing about through megaphones. Television. Gotta love that television. You know. So in 1932, the BBC launches a 30-line service. 
and it is in one of those, you know, it's, it's to be viewed on one of those big tin boxes, or the home television kit. I'm interested about this period because the idea of the kits, now the kit's not cheap, they're 16 guineas. How big of a chunk out of a year's wages is 16 guineas for the average person? But the idea of television as a hobbyist's thing, you've already got Popular Wireless spins off its practical television section into its own magazine, I think in 1934. Television's fairly surprisingly mainstream in its own way, and I think it being a hobbyist's thing, it would extend the audience down a bit into a lower middle class section, which is then going to affect the output they're going to be doing. And the reason that my voice is going up at the end is not me because I watched too many Australian soaps in the 90s. It's because I am asking questions. I'm not sure of the answers. I presume that you're asking this of the general public who are listening. You're not asking this of me, are you? I'm shouting this out into the universe and hoping an answer will come back. Well, we do have a little bit of a program from that service existing in a form. We have four minutes of the first ever television review looking in. We have the pictures in barely watchable quality existing. 39 television, low enough bandwidth, you can actually turn it into an audible signal and record it on an audio recorder, which in those days would have been a metal disc. And again, a hobbyist, it's definitely, I mean, Baird had his own system, but this is somebody at home who's a bit of a bodger, has recorded a bit of this review. And there's a fantastic site, tvdawn.com, I think that's the site, a guy called Donald McLean. And there's uh, an audio book on CD called The Dawn of Television Remembered, read by Richard Baker. And it's got this CD-ROM stuff, so you actually have the video. You've got the bits of surviving recordings of 30-line television. So I was able to take a look at it. And it's surprisingly mobile. It would appear to start with a zoom. Now, whether the camera zooms up, I don't think that that's going to happen. I think something is brought forward to the camera, a curtain, and then people pop their heads through it. And the number of different faces you see in this four minutes is quite something. Looks like every act introduces themselves at the beginning. And they're making the you know, de- gesturing. I think two of them point right down into the camera. And then we have some change of focus. I don't know if it's done with a turret lens. And we have dancing girls. Well, hey, kicking. And that's just four minutes. We have lots of things happening, lots of new information to take on. So that 39 service. It might well have been a lot of faces, but it's faces singing, it's popular entertainers, and there is time for dancing in long shot. It's a shame we don't know more. It would shatter some preconceptions, I think, just going from the little bits that we have to look at. Do we want to know how this material survived all these years? It's a metal disc. It's not shellac. It's not a tape that can be wiped. It's a metal disc. Bang, bang, bang. It's a metal disc that somebody didn't throw away. That's my answer. Metal. Metal lasts. A good long time, more than certain other substances. Been recorded in chocolate, forget it. Are you in effect saying that if the BBC had stuck with the metal discs, then they would have recordings of everything they ever did? And the BBC but it's not store... the BBC that recorded this, this is somebody at home. It's also the reason that it's less viewable than other thing because the disc has survived, but it might not have survived entirely in the shape it needed to be. There's... Another recording, I think it's been recorded by somebody who, other than the person who recorded looking it, there's a recording of a singer called Betty Bolton, and that looks more recognisably human. That's possibly the best quality 30-line recording that still exists. Again, no sound, just the picture. And obviously, nowhere near as good as what they had then. 
I think a 30-line picture was perfectly acceptable. It's something that's very difficult. Well, you go on YouTube. There's lots of people who've got their own home-built televisors. And you could have something better than you'd expect in a 30-line in a, in a system. So where are we at this time then? Is this... These are still these tests which have been given the green light, but this is not... Technically, it's meant to be an experimental system, but it runs for three years. And the first televisions go on sale, the televisors, go on sale in 1930. Baird commissions 4,000 of those tin box televisors. Those are 25 guineas, and there are the television kits, only 16 guineas. 1930, he sends one to Ramsey MacDonald at Downing Street. Good for publicity. And it's a medium wave signal. It's a medium wave signal, so it carries a lot longer. I know we're possibly still thinking about that other television system that we're celebrating the anniversary of, which is London only. But for a medium wave system, that can carry longer. So that we're talking about 4,000 that are meant to be sold throughout a much larger area. I wouldn't say throughout the entire country. But Baird was able to do transatlantic television in 1928. So yeah, thousands of televisions. Now, I don't think he sold 4,000. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask, who who are the consumers at this time? I, I hesitate to use the word viewers because I'm not actually sure if that was the common expression by this point. But you, you mentioned about the people who are hobbyists, but also the people who are going to be buying one of these sets, and you mentioned the price of them and so on. I mean, we're, we're talking about sort of well-heeled society types, really. Well-heeled we? long... hobbyists and early adopters. Do I fit into that categorization because I bought a non-digital box on the 24th of December 1998? I suppose in a way, by the end of 1935, 30-line television is obsolete and the people who bought them are laughed at. <laughs> Much as anybody who bought a non-digital box, uh, imagine a Warner Brothers cartoon. Now imagine Gary's head. Now imagine Gary's head crossfading so it's a drawing of a massive lollipop with the words Big Sucker written on it. <laughs> Tex Avery presents the Gary Rogers story, sponsored by On Digital. Let's go back to Selfridges. 1935, Selfridges sells what, if you wanted to, you could argue is the first home video. It's a disc of still pictures, faces, and I think at least one test pattern. But there it is. It is for sale to the public. It's not even made by Selfridges. I think it's made by a company called Major Radio Vision. It just gives you an indication that television was not mainstream, but it was not just something that only three people were interested in. And again, that recording exists. You can have a look at restored recordings of it. And when I said it stills, I think it is somebody like putting a still on and pulling it off some sort of easel or holder because they slide in and slide out. So in its own way, it is actually television. So analogy. We've got this experimental service, and this is not a proper analogy, as in, I, I know that this is not like for like, but I'm just talking about the purely about public perception at this stage, okay? Nothing to do with the technology. So we've got the experimental service going on, and it's been given the sort of nod by BBC and what have you. Now, you know my obsession with general election broadcasts. Recently, I was looking at some bits and pieces related to the election of 97. And you notice on there that the news broadcasts from the BBC are suddenly making reference to some strange contraption called the Internet, which may or may not have multiple T's in its name. Now, that's what this sort of strikes me as at this point when you're talking about this. It's like the radio is the thing. That's what the BBC does. That's That's what it's for. And yeah, we're sort of given a little bit of 
you know, attention to this newfangled technology may, may not take off, whatever. But if you want to use your computer, if you want to sit in front of it and, and look at the material, then you'll find our web presence over there at this long, ridiculously lengthy address. Is that a fair analogy in terms of the relationship between BBC and television at this stage? Yes, it's clunky. It doesn't look like something ordinary people want to get involved in. But I think everybody knows it's not going away. Batman Forever came out in 1995. And I remember some feature... Might have been Newsround, actually. I remember something saying, Right, you see this funny-looking bit on the poster of Batman Forever? That leads to a website. That's a good analogy. That relationship is... Yeah, we, we know most people don't have it now, and we know that the people who do have it are a certain kind of early adopter expert, but we do know that eventually enough people are going to have it that we have to be involved now. Three years is not chicken feed, a three-year, 30-line television service that doesn't get talked about much. It indicates some sort of commitment, even if it's just a commitment to keep the wolves away from the door. So if there is going to be television, let it be BBC television. And in the view of other people, if there is going to be television in Britain, let it be British television on a British system run by a British company. And in some ways that brings us to 1936. So from August 1936, because while that's not the public television service, that's really the beginning of BBC television from Alexandra Palace. We'll say from August 36. To February 1937, they're still faffing about with two different systems, and it's partially Friends in High Places and National Pride, and those two things are tied in with each other. There are Friends in High Places who are not wanting to concede that the British system is not the best. There's that surviving bit of newsreel footage. It's not actually the first day of the Radio Olympia demonstration. How do I know that? Because I'm dead clever, because uh, the, the face we see is Elizabeth Cowell. And that first day, I think, was presented by Leslie Mitchell. I just wanted to show off my research. Hello, Radio Olympia. This is direct television. Direct television. It's not telecine. Telecine is something that's being developed, but that's part of the whole reason of this thing. This is live or almost live. This is as it happens. That's the important thing about television. That's why television is relevant in a way that home movie projectors are not. Direct television, that's a word that you hear used in the 1930s and that's the whole point. Live events and also the flexibility of it. It's not just a matter of sporting events. The fact that you can show a play to an audience of a certain size that you couldn't live. There are only a few hundred sets, but there's possibly more than one person per screen. And eventually one day, well, let's, okay, let's jump forward. One day, half the country is going to be able to watch a theatrical performance. There is no theatre in which you can get 25 million people to watch Morecambe and Wise. So direct television. Why television? Why did it exist? Why were people getting so excited? It's not just the novelty, it's directness. And that is in one way Baird's downfall. It was one thing that counted against it because he had that intermediate film system. He was filming it, developing the film, and then telecineing the film, scanning the film and pumping it out. So everything everybody was seeing was 54 seconds ago. You all know, you all watched that ho-hum documentary on BBC4 
its personal journey. I'm yeah, I'm just getting grumpy about it. And that's the system the Germans are using. The Germans start a service in 1935. It's 180 lines, in case you're interested, 25 frames per second, and it's telecine and it's intermediate film, and they still have some of the intermediate film. There are quite a few clips of that German television service. Of course, the fact that it ran from 1935 to 1944 indicates why its commercial exploitation is somewhat limited, but its historical interest is vast. Uh, the use they eventually found during the war, one of the main things after war was declared, and there's this whole thing of, does this contribute anything to the war effort? They put it in soldiers' hospitals. It's kind of a propaganda machine to show to the wounded soldiers, including towards the end, if you there's a documentary called Television Under the Swastika, that's on YouTube, and I think it's on a couple of other video streaming services. You know, the, not the ones you pay for, like Daily Motion or Vimeo. I can't remember which one. Towards the end of the service, and towards the end of the war, one of the things is showing amputee soldiers that they will be just fine. And one of the reasons they're telling them you will be just fine, there are exercises you can do to make you just as mobile, is we're going to be sending you back to the front lines. So the Germans saw television they were invested in it as a propaganda tool now without wishing to draw a parallel between the british government in the 1930s and the german government in the 1930s who i think had some fairly differing ideas about things it is still an appeal something that gets to millions of people at once something to convey information not necessarily propaganda though that's got to be in somebody's mind it's certainly true that politicians took them a little while to come around to the idea but they did eventually embrace the idea of the party political broadcast, the political address, first on radio and then on television, of course. So, national pride and foreign interests. Because who else is in the television game? Well, the main other name to talk about is Marconi EMI. But they're another example of television being the result of a number of parallel developments. Mentioned Zworykin earlier. He's a Russian scientist living in America who's developing an electronic system with some sort of electronic tube camera. In the early 30s, over at Marconi EMI, they're looking at developing tube cameras, they're looking at electronic television. Mechanical television in some ways, even though it, it existed throughout the 30s, it's an invention of the 20s. People in the 30s are looking at electronic television. And there are a couple of guys at Marconi, J.G. McGee and W.F. Tedham. And they're getting there, they're developing some sort of tube, but it doesn't quite happen. Later on in the decade, Zworykin publishes some of his findings, some of what he's doing. He leaves out a few essential things. It's a fairly standard thing if you're an inventor. You say, here's the proof of concept, here's the proof it's from me, but I'm not going to tell you everything because then you could do it for yourselves. And over at Marconi EMI, somebody looks and says, this bit he's missed out mentioning. Isn't that like what we had McGee and Tedham working on? So that's an example of a Russian-American development, an Italian-British company with British workers working out part of it, taking the Russian and American developments and putting it all together. Well, who can be said to have invented that? Bzz. John Lugie Bear. Fair enough. I don't blame that was just I was, I was in the pub quiz zone there. So. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, Baird is the giant of the development of television. A name to mention in terms of televisions that ended up in the 20th century is, in Britain anyway, is Isaac Schoenberg, who's Director of Patents and Research, Marconi EMI. And he takes a fateful decision, and a brave decision as well. 
So everybody's working on the different systems. You got 180 lines. Baird gets up to 240 lines. They are 25-ish frames per second. So what today, you, in television terms, you might call progressive. It's a misused term, but they'd look like film, or they just they wouldn't look like live telly as people who grew up in the good old days know it. Different things are being developed, and Schoenberg is the one who has to commit his team to a standard, and he announces that Marconi and I are going to go for 405 lines and 50 fields a second. So I think he's a, a name worth mentioning. Isaac Schoenberg there mentioned it again. Because in some ways, I think that is also a way of separating cinema and television. Twice as much movement information means it looks significantly different. And of course, it looks live. It looks more present. It was, it was a fairly ambitious idea. And of course, they did it. And that is the television system from 1936. It's the only game in town up to 64. And of course, you're still able to get 405 line television up until I think it's 1984. Uh, January 85, I think it was. Oh, right. Wow. Switched off. Yeah. Now, here's the thing, because this... I suppose it'd be easy to sort of overlook the significance of this, but in all the things that you've been talking about so far, 30 lines, 240 lines, and yet now we've got this announcement that they're going to go for a line system that... I'm not really we haven't even seen this demonstrated yet. Is that right? This is that They've announced their intention to go ahead with an ambition. Is that correct? This is not something that's already been displayed. You can only do so much research, mate. He must have had a reason. I don't think he just plucked the number 405 lines out of midair. So, clearly somewhere there's some piece of research paper saying we could probably get up to 405 lines. During the 1940s, Baird actually got... I think Baird actually got up to 1,000 lines. He got an HD system, HD as we think of it. So, it's always that thing of increasing the lines... Schoenberg has some reason for thinking that they can achieve 405 lines, and maybe they've achieved 50 fields a second separately and he thinks they can be combined. I'm not sure. The Baird system, Matter of National Pride, and the Marconi EMI system, pretty technically spectacular. Except for one thing, it's telecine isn't as good as Baird's. And it's lighting. It's lighting people I don't think are as good. So you get a lot of washed out faces. That's something that has to be dealt with. But I'm going to say that if not by the time of Radio Olympia, by the time of November 1936, the official launch of the BBC television service, Baird being still around is, is a diplomatic thing. I mean, the BBC were talking with Marconi MI before the Radio Olympia. There, there were reasons that they didn't have to suddenly switch. They were talking with them and basically say, yes, keep telling us your developments and we're interested in your developments, but we can't show too much public interest in what you're doing. But almost as if you pull it off, there will be space at the BBC for you to display your wares. They mentioned Radio Olympia, so I guess that's a trade show for radios. 1936 was particularly poorly attended, so a television demonstration was felt to be just the thing to get the people in. You'd know that if you'd watched any of the documentaries or Fools on the Hill and managed to remember it. I almost didn't. But you did manage to find the 1976 equivalent of the new BBC4 documentary. That was good. I enjoyed it. Okay, that. there's one bit that this show that isn't quite the way it happened. You know the bit with Peter Dawson? Um, 
they have th- there is this bit so peter dawson is in the right we're going to have some singing on the bed system it's a fixed camera it can pan left and right it can do close-ups and things by just changing the lenses which i imagine will probably happen on screen clunk 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 which is even something that happened you, you think you can see that sometimes i've definitely seen that on something i think i have on dvd the vision makes a cut at the wrong time but you see the the lens change anyway so peter dawson is meant to sit down and sing and in the documentary they show him i prefer to stand no, apparently what happened was, was they rehearsed, and he sits down, and he sings, and it looks fine. And then it comes for the actual broadcast, and Elizabeth Cowell introduces him, and suddenly they're seeing his his chest and his hands, and they're not seeing him. And somebody comes to Mr. Dawson, would you put it down? He goes, but there's a lady present this time. <laughs> Stood up because he wanted to show due deference to the femininity of Elizabeth Cowell. It's almost interesting to look at November the 2nd because the opening show is a retread. Do you ever get confused like I did? There's two songs you'll see sung by Adele Dixon. One of them is Here's looking at you from out of the blue. That's Radio Olympia. And then there's A mighty maze of mystic magic rays. That's November the 2nd. The Radio Olympia show is called Here's Looking at You. As well, you know, it's a more snappy title than just calling it Variety. Nah, come on, that's just bald description. So how are things at Ali Pally when it comes to November the 2nd after the triumph of the summer? The first show to go out is called Variety. And here to sing again is Adele Dixon because we, we don't have any new ideas. <laughs> it's a slight sense that it's like, as far as the people working there, the real launch was, was August. Uh, Gerald Cock, who's the director of television, I think he tells the story on probably all the documentaries he's interviewed in. There's the Jack Rosenthal play, Fools on the Hill. I think that's on YouTube, and that portrays it. There's that thing of, like, he's sent down to Alexander Palace, goes into his office, and the telephone is already ringing, even though there's no furniture, and he picks it up and he's told, uh, yeah, uh, you actually launch in nine days. <laughs> Something like that. Okay, I want to bring up the thorny, I suppose you could say, issue of content at this stage. Because you touched on it there when you said about the November the 2nd show, effectively a sort of rerun of Olympia and so on. Now, I'm given to understand that during the tests in years previous, and we spoke earlier one about the kind of people who would actually have their own televisions during this time, supposedly they had received feedback from people to say, you're doing these things like demonstrations of cookery and washing and ironing we don't do that kind of thing uh, basically people who had the disposable income to have a television set of their own the implication being that they also had for example domestic help yeah it's something i wondered about earlier that when it's a matter of television kits when it's mechanical when there's possibly some people watching television haven't even bought one of the kits they're just sufficiently enough of a bodger to build their own i'm thinking that 39 television might have had and also, of course, it's out into the regions because it's medium wave and it's bouncing across hill and dale. I am wondering if there was a class shift up when television becomes the matter of cathode ray tubes. Dual system. And the first dual system televisions went on sale towards the end of 1935. Don't know what they were watching. Because the 30-line system, which I doubt would have been picked up by those, ended again towards the end of 1935. And Bird's Crystal Palace service had already ended by then. 
that's just one of like little the little mysteries. Question mark first. Cathode radial system televisors go on sale end of thirty five. Public television starts end of thirty six. Somebody must have bought one that didn't make it. There's going to be a point, and I suspect it's going to be around about this time, this launch of the BBC TV service. There's going to be a point at which the novelty of people just watching television ceases to be a novelty. Now, I suppose you could argue that actually that novelty still continues to exist probably all the way into the 1960s for those people who didn't have a television of their own. Nonetheless, I think that there is a subtle shift here in some of the programming as we enter 1937 to television actually putting out content which is enjoyable in its own right, say plays, for example. So it's no longer just look at these magic rays of light. Can you believe that this person who's speaking to you now is actually speaking to you live and yet you're seeing it in your home? To there's an actual bill, there's a, a variety bill, so to speak, uh, of, of material for you this evening. And that this has got the same sort of breadth as your weekly radio listings or your, you know, say Sunday newspaper or whatever it may be. It's got to have compelling content in order to get beyond that initial sort of early adopter phase and into the majority of homes. And I think that was already happening. I already said, even in 1933, 30 line is getting a bit of movement and variety of shot involved. 36, I don't know if it was the first day. Uh, definitely, I think within the first week, one of the things shown is a documentary on film called Cover to Cover, talking to authors of the time. While I said direct television, the live stuff is really the big selling point. Telecine is important. The ability to show film via a television means is important. And it was one of the advantages Bed had over EMI. Because when you have Telecine, you can have edited content that's had a bit more time spent on it, like this cover-to-cover documentary. So that's one thing. Of course, one of the saviours of British television is Walt Disney who for reasons I cannot really work out for myself, said to the BBC, you can have two Mickey Mouse cartoons a day. That was helpful. Five minutes of telecine. You can actually get people out of the studio and get more people into the studio. Ah, wonderful. Right, so the different departments, that early system. Talks, drama, music, opera and film. And the way I think I saw it written down, it made it sound like opera and film were the same department. So it's not just it's not just dancers and singers being pumped out the entire time. Talks is felt to be important. And if you see a clip, there's something called the television demonstration film. I've only seen clips. I'd love to see the whole thing. But that's a really great picture of pre-war television. It was just meant to be shown during the day. As Leslie Mitchell says, it was not intended for the viewer at home, but for the trade. Partially to tune up and partially for people in shops that sell these expensive devices so they can say, look, this is what television is. So there's lots of clips and there's a bit where somebody says that he feels that television can do for the arts, for the fine arts, for the visual arts, what radio did for classical music. So there is still a very strong Riffian ethos through this new service. It may be the new medium, but it's still the BBC. However, excuse me while I argue against myself now, even though you might think with the introduction of a new service like this, they would go for the the populist material, 
that would be the easiest way to get this new medium, this new slate of devices from various manufacturers. It would be the easiest way to get that into people's homes by going for the most popular material. At the same time, these sets are still very expensive. So if it was Sunday night at the London Palladium every single night, for example, would there not be a bit of a problem there that it actually that the material was perhaps very popular but the sets themselves are still financially out of the reach of most of the public so actually having this kind of material having things like talks and opera and drama and so on perhaps actually fits the demographic better at this time and you could argue and i'd, I'd really like us to actually do the onset of itv at some point on jaffa cakes i think there's an argument for saying that <laughs> onset Make it sound like it's an inflammation. <laughs> well, as far as Reef was concerned, it probably was. <laughs> but there's an argument for saying that the time in which ITV arrives... Dude, dude, dude. It's only partially being made for the audience at the time. It is also partially a development, a constant development. It's got an eye on where it's going to be. So one of the advantages of variety is that it's bitty. There was the worry about eye strain, and there was the worry about attention strain. There's also the worry about breakdowns. So showing something too long a length might be a problem because 10 minutes of it might go up in smoke. So keeping it bitty helps, and variety is a bitty genre. It's not just a matter of what the audience wants and what the ABC ones at home will respond best to. There is partially... What can we put out? What can we get? What can we get that has not just intellectual prestige, but entertainment prestige? There's a thing where they they invited Ivan Novello to come into the studio. A bus came with all these people on it. He'd paid for the cast of his show that was on at the moment to come along. It's partially just the excitement of that. So... In some ways, it's being programmed for the benefit of the people making it. Not in that way that we said, you know, having more fun than the audience, but just a case of if we put this on, we can work out interesting ways of cutting. Cutting actually wasn't possible. It was still a crossfade and the electronic cameras. You couldn't cut from camera to camera until after the war. It was an eight-second crossfade. I think they got it down to two before the servers closed in 1939. But it's like we can work out different angles. So let's get lots of different things in to work out different techniques. This is something the people watching now will like, but also it will help us develop a system that the people watching years from now will benefit from because we've got all of the mistakes out of our system. One thing I did stumble across myself, and I've sent it to yourself, was this interesting little piece from 1938 about a company called Scoffany. Oh, yes. Oh, now, yes. I know that I know you're going to talk in a minute about some of the, the technological bits and pieces. They had this 24-inch screen, for example. But the bit that caught my eye about that was that this was in, like I say, it was 1938, and there was a report in the Times about the, the, the company's annual report and their profits and so on. And the way that they were talking in this, it was basically they were saying, look, television just now is all very well. BBC, it, it does its job. It's doing its you know, fine programming is already worthy and what have you. But if this is ever going to become a populist medium, we actually need to have populist material on the screen. There's discussion in this article about the prospect of commercial television in 1938. The only thing as well about this is that there's discussion about a specific television service for the cinemas. 
in the UK. And things like that really fascinate me. Things like that, which I mean, obviously we know why bits and pieces that were talked about in this report in 1938 didn't come to pass, because of course you know, we have got the six-year interruption of the television service. But things like that fascinate me. Just the, the, the idea that there would have been a commercial television service as early as that, the idea that there would have been a television service purely for cinemas, which effectively would have become, I suppose you could say, would be along the lines of the closed-circuit television service in America that was quite to the fore in like the sort of the seventies and eighties and was used for major events, sometimes like music concerts and boxing matches and, and, and so on. In some ways it's something that goes back to bed. We totally didn't mention the man with a flower in his mouth. First television play, right, mention that. When that went out, Baird had a showing back at his studios at Long Acre on a big screen made up of over two thousand small light bulbs. Big, big screen television for a large number of people. I think there's another reason. Maybe it's me being all cynical, but reading that article, I couldn't help get a faint feeling of snouts in the trough. Oh, yes, yes. It's BBC are doing something, and we're not making money off that. And part of that is, right, who, who are the big competitors? The cinema company. So if we can find a system, we can sell to the cinema company saying, hey, you can benefit from this there then maybe we can get a little bit of that sweet moolah we can cream a bit off for ourselves. <laughs> and I am quoting, was it, was it Sir Maurice Bonham Carter? Yes, yes. I'm quoting him directly there. He's saying we've got to cream off some of that sweet moolah. Mind you, the print was very, <laughs> uh, was slightly smudged and I didn't have my glasses on and I had been using industrial strength solvents in an unventilated space. So maybe he didn't say that. But why you t- why you seeing this closed circuit thing? I don't know. Do you go to the cinema much? Um, not not particularly. No, I don't know how much of a thing it is in the UK. But when I go to the cinema over here, frequently there are trailers for something called Fathom Events, and that's just one company. I'm don't doubt there's another, and there'd be things like Live at the Met, Young Metropolitan Opera, and these are regular things. I'm not sending you to a commercial. <laughs> operation but if you want to look at fathom events and look at what they have listed and some of it is they're just showing old movies but they're probably showing it via a satellite system so they don't have to send out prints but some of it is television at the cinema it's a live event that you go to the cinema to see so it's interesting how prescient that is so partially i guess you know we say we're pushing back against the office bores against funny baloney anniversaries and you remember a whole sitcom thing i don't know where i would be able to do the research and nail this down definitively. But a horrible thing flickered across my notes. The possibility that maybe Pinwright's progress wasn't first. There's some sort of regular comedic thing, which I saw described as a comedy serial, in the barber's chair. The book I read it in, uh, Here's Looking at You, by Bruce Norman, which is part of that early Television Remembered disc, mentions something called Percy Ponsonby's progress, but searching for that didn't bring anything up. There's a character called Percy Ponsonby who is a comic character on the early BBC television service. It's part of something called In the Barber's Chair, but I don't know if you could call it a sitcom. There's also something called Anne and Harold. Is that the first soap opera? Who knows? It's described as a serial drama. So, your man Baird, has he been sort of edged away to you know the sidelines by this point pretty much even at the time of 1936 i mean he wasn't invited to the launch 
He'd been sidelined because earlier on his company had been sold to the Ostras over at Gaumont. Again, a cinema company. And one of the things they wanted him for was a possibility of some sort of system of putting television in cinemas. So at the board level at Baird Television, he's no longer the big guy. He still has some technical standing. But once the BBC abandons the Baird system in February 37, yeah, he goes off and he starts working on other things, including more colour television. Colour television was 600 lines and then some system that goes up to 1,000 lines. But by that point, it's the war and there are other things to be concentrating on that aren't television. So a couple of other facts about this television service. So we said yes, there's variety, but there are talks and opera. Between 36 and 39, there are 326 plays, 14 of which have been specially written. J.B. Priestley seemed to be very interested in television. Picture Page, one of television's first big hits. And that's, it's a chat show of a type, you know, that in town tonight kind of thing. So you have the woman operating the telephone exchange system with a screen in it. You're through to Picture Page, you want to see who? And then that's the link that then goes to somebody, probably Leslie Mitchell, interviewing some person of interest who's around and about, but again, done in a bitty format. So there could be eight interviews in one show. I think there's a case of one show where he's talking to somebody, I think, who doesn't speak English. But there's bits where Leslie Mitchell is conveying to the viewers what this person is saying, and he's just making it up. And when the show's over, somebody comes up and says, didn't you notice that all the way through the man was saying to you, don't you want to ask me a question? In his own language. That story is just about the seat of the pants nature of television. No, no stripes knocked off Leslie Mitchell for that. I was going to deal with the closure of the television service. Oh, I'll, I'll handle that bit. Right, so they were showing this Mickey Mouse cartoon, right? And then, you know, Hitler and what have you. So they cut it off halfway through. And then when they started their television service again in 1946, they started it at exactly the same point in the same Mickey Mouse cartoon. Bzz, two points. Pub quiz, there you go. Way. Get yourself to a search engine and search Baird, because that's the subsection of the Transdiffusion website. The edit that rewrote history. You might want to put that bit in quotes. There's an article on transdiffusion.org about what exactly happened on the last day of the pre-war television service, what people said happened, the fact that it didn't happen, the fact that what people thought happened was actually the fault of television itself making a dramatic point that was then taken as practically a recording of the event happening. So the service closed down. On the 1st of September 1939, not quite showing what was advertised. But if you want to go to something really exciting, go to the BBC Genome. And they have that thing that you can search the television listings. BBC Genome has the television listings for September the 2nd. So a listing of an entire day that was never broadcast. So further reading, watching, tickling, drinking. You've mentioned Transdiffusion already, and that's a fabulous resourceful manner of bits and pieces, not just for this era, of course, but for television altogether. But the really pertinent articles are Baird's Independent Television and the edit that rewrote history. The BBC4 documentary that you mentioned that will still be on the iPlayer for a couple of weeks just now, the 1976 documentary, what I think is called The Birth of Television, you'll find that on YouTube. It's a recording from a repeat, I think, in 
early 1980s. Magic Rays of Light. That's another documentary on YouTube. Also on YouTube, it took me a while to find it, In split up into, I think, seven parts is something called Television is Here Again, which was a 1946 film, a bit like the television demonstration film. So it was shown during the daytime. Uh, I don't think immediate post-war television was all that different from immediate pre-war television. So that will give you a bit of a sense what early British television was like, and also how moderately racy it was. There's a woman dancing around in a skirt and a bra. There's a comedy monologue where somebody uses the word erotic, and there's a really magnificent bit where they try and imagine what the future of television would be like, and you see this painting of what somebody in 1946 thought a BBC television centre would look like. And it does have that big central column, uh, but around it are 13 studios with B, B, C, written on the top that built as many studios not as many studios as they need but as many studios as they need to spell out the words BBC television so that anybody flying over a head in one of those futuristic jetpacks we'll all have by 1960 Hang on, I can think of a source of confusion coming up here Which studio is it in? Since Studio B, which one? <laughs> no, no, I meant Studio E Which one? Oh god, we need a better system than this That disc that you mentioned on the website, tvdon.com, it says at the moment that it's temporarily unavailable, but the disc itself is called The Dawn of Television Remembered, the John Logie Baird years, 1923 to 1936. And if you can get a copy, it has a book on it in PDF form called Here's Looking at You by Bruce Norman. That's really super in-depth. And if you've been thinking, if at any point you've thought, wow, this guy really knows his stuff, then nah, I just cribbed it off there, just wrote down all the relevant bits from that book also on it, I think they're MP4s, there are those clips of the home recordings of 30-line television, some of Baird's phonovision experiments. So you can actually look at the first four minutes of looking in and try and make out human faces, if you can. By the way, addendum to uh, nighttime television, if I remember correctly, it just popped into my head, that advert actually went, Don't be bored, call 0898. 57, 57, 57. If you have anything for us at all, you can tweet us at Jaffas for Proust. You can email us at feedback well, you can, at can tweet you. com. What? I stopped reading Twitter. I'm off social media. I oh, yeah, no, that's. What, yes, you are. You know. you, uh, th- why do you think I've got so much done? Why do you think I read entire books and watched all these documentaries? Get off social media, kids. You'd be amazed what you can get done. I like Twitter when it's all nice and silly and what have you. Latterly, it's not been nice and silly, and so I'm using it less. I think those days are behind humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much indeed for joining us this week, and we'll be back next Friday. Our plan is to be with you every Friday from then till the end of the year. But keep an eye on podnose.com, because that's where all the action is. And we will be with you again this time next week with another Jaffa Cakes for Proust.